On n'allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. Si. Listening to the Ackerman Year, the world's premier, by which I mean both best and, to my knowledge, first podcast all about the work and life, but mainly work, of the filmmaker Chantal Ackerman. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, of course, by Kate Rennebon. Hello, everybody. If you happen to be coming to us from the Lodgers, it will not shock you to learn that our first guest <laughs> is my good friend Justine Smith. Hi, I'm super happy to be here. I'm so excited. Uh, this has been, uh, as you already know, if you listen to our inaugural episode zero, a long time in the offing. And uh, we're finally here. It's finally happening. It is. <laughs> it's finally happening. It's very, I think it's very good that Justine is here to help us uh, kick oh, this yeah, off. Lodger, Lodgers fans may remember some of our sillier uh, outings on the Lodgers and Paul Justine. So why not start this um, podcast about one of the great sort of high art modernist filmmakers of the 20th century with, uh, I don't know, let's see if we can do a silly discussion at any point during this. We'll find out, I guess. Oh, I'm sure we'll find something. <laughs> So uh, today, now, Kate, how, what, was your, what was your terminology for this grouping of films? I believe it was Domestic Orders. Oh, yeah. Um, you're just, you're reminding me, Simon, I should have opened that tab. Um, I think it was something <laughs> like, uh, yeah, interiors and domestic orders. Uh, yeah. The kind of loose grouping of films about rooms and domesticity in mm. Ackerman's. What I have is uh, these are Chantal Ackerman's Hangout movies. <laughs> But either works. We're not exactly going to be proceeding in strict chronological order. In this episode, we are going to be talking about uh, the the biggin, the one that uh, you, listener, are most likely to have already seen. And that's Jeanne Dielman. I'll, I'll do the whole title later once and only once, I promise. <laughs> um, but uh, we're also going to be talking about a few of the, uh, her early films leading up to that, that which may or may not signpost uh, certain aspects of, of Jean Dielman as we get there. Weirdly, because we we are, for this episode, proceeding chronologically, we have to start with a film that uh, we could really only see in very degraded quality with no subtitles. Yeah. Um, so uh, this before maybe we dig into that film, though, which is uh, called uh, Un Enfant Aimé. Yeah, la femme est où je joue à être une femme mariée. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Um, before we dig into that, though, uh, I thought maybe it'd be useful, Simon, to just give a little bit of the kind of biographical overview oh, yes. of where where we Please are with do. Ackerman and where she's going. Yeah. Um, this week. Uh, yeah. So as Simon um, maybe implied earlier, we are not going to do the early the '70s films in strict chronological order. We're going to focus on some of her earliest material and then go to Jean Dielman at the end of the podcast. Um, so we'll have a chance to kind of circle back to some of these questions in future weeks too. But um, yeah, at this point, I think maybe just to give some useful backstory. So we left off uh, with Sotmoville last week, uh, Ackerman's earliest short that she made in Brussels in Belgium. Um, and while one of the films that we're going to hint at this week was made in Europe. The rest were made in America. So she arrives to, oh, sorry, of course, John Dielman is made in Brussels. But the um, the other films that we're going to talk about this week, which are uh, Le Chambre, uh, 
uh, Hotel Monterey. And um, oh my God, I'm getting lost here uh, in my own biographical overview. Um, <laughs> L'Enfant Aimé, I believe, is made in Europe. She then comes to the United States. And this is a kind of major um, development in Ackerman's work is her arrival in New York. She meets a woman named Babette Mengolt, who would become the cinematographer for her early films. And Babette Mengolt is a really important artist in her own right. She's a really big figure in the kind of avant-garde she was a very one of the earliest examples, actually, of a female cinematographer to graduate from um, a film school. And she introduced Ackerman in a lot of ways to the New York uh, avant-garde scene that was really exploding at that moment. And this is really important for a lot of reasons for Ackerman, basically because she kind of encounters the other half of her major set of influences in this early moment. Um, we can maybe talk about this a little bit later, but for ease of reference, the kind of two big threads in her early thinking here are European art cinema filmmakers like Jean-Luc Godard, Eric Romer, um, Fassbinder. Uh, there's others that we can talk about as well. Uh, Brasson is another important one. But then when she arrives in the United States, she is in, uh, introduced to figures like Andy Warhol, Michael Snow, the structuralist filmmakers, uh, the uh, minimalist art, the Judson dance um, theater folks like Merce Cunningham, uh, John Cage, et cetera, et cetera. So this is sort of the background of what's going on in Ackerman's life. And we can dig into that a little bit more with the various films, but that's sort of going to be kind of the arc of this episode. And then she kind of takes all of that and injects it into Jean Dielman in this sort of really incredible way. Um, but to back up to where we were when Simon introduced us, let's go back a little bit. She's just finished Chamoville. She's trying to make her next film, which is called La Fontaine. Uh, and it doesn't go the way she wants it to go <laughs> in mm. this project. Yeah, We need to remind everyone that she's like 20 at this mm -hmm. point. She's insanely young. Yes. Um, so yeah, I don't know, Simon, do you want to give kind of an overview of your sense of what happens in uh, La Fin Aimé? La Fin Aimé, which we watched in like sub VHS quality. The, we sort of hinted at this in uh, episode zero, but right now, right away, we're already coming up against uh, one of I, what I'm sure will be a running theme throughout this entire podcast, which is access to films. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I know that a copy of this exists with subtitles. I also know that a copy exists of a film that we couldn't even see called Le Quince Rit, not Le Quince Rit, as I said in the first episode, that was wrong. It's a date. It's August 15th. So it's just Le Quince Rit anyway. I hope to circle back to Le Quince Rit in a future episode of this podcast, but we just, uh, I have my connections, Kate, you have yours, and Justine, you have yours too, and no, not a one of us was able to produce that film. This is a really interesting one because there's a lot of thematic overlap here in La Femme in terms of, um, as you would expect from the grouping, domesticity uh, and the, the notion of uh, the, the lives being lived by, um, by women domestically at the time. Uh, but it's a weird outlier stylistically in a lot of ways from I think everything else we're talking about. Um, and it's also, it's, it's just a really odd film in terms of uh, Ackerman's presence. Like, you know, it, it, the, as the title sort of implies, it's, it's kind of like she's shadowing this, this woman, like, like she's training for a job or something, or just <laughs> sort of seeing what, what, what this woman's life is like. Um, she's kind of like a, like taking a tour, like a, like a guided tour of domesticity, which is a, a really mm -hmm. strange vibe, to be honest. 
Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. I actually had not thought of it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, just as a little bit more backstory. The film is not super long. It's only about 35 minutes in the form that it's available in now. Ackerman disowned this film. So she shot this material and then rejected it. And there's some debate about why. Um, she apparently gave an interview with Jonas Mikas, and Mikas said how much he liked films like La Chambre and Hotel Monterey, but that he didn't like this one. And so it's possible that she was sort of like encouraged to disown it a little bit it's unclear but yeah she does not like it she considers it a fail project and we'll we'll come back to it a version of it much later in the podcast because she reworked some of the footage into an installation much later in her career but yeah the basic arc of the film is it takes place um on a kind of property most of the time you're inside a house although sometimes you're outside and Ackerman is there but she's kind of a non-character she sort of as Simon says follows around the lead played by Oh, for goodness sake, I'm forgetting her name off the top of my head. But she's the same actress who's uh, at the end of Jatulal, so we'll have time to talk about her next week, but or next month. But she um, is a kind of young woman. She's married, presumably, although we never see the husband. And she has a young daughter who, um, I don't know, maybe is six or seven, which in and of itself is very strange to see a child in Ackerman's films. I actually thought that while watching it, I was like, you never see anybody below a teenager as a kind of speaking lead in Ackerman's films. And maybe we could talk a little bit about why. Um, but so there's a child and the main woman, as Simon says, kind of plays at being a woman. She talks about her relationship with her husband to Ackerman sometimes um, in a sequence that's quite Romer-like, actually. It's this sort of woman speaking these lines of dialogue that are a little fragmented, a little stagey um, about her kind of sexual relationship with the husband. But then otherwise, she just sort of like wanders around this house and kind of acts a little oddly, as is the tradition of Ackerman's film. She, at one point, she stands in front of a mirror naked for an extended period of time and like lists all of the things about her body, sometimes negatively, but sometimes just really neutrally. Yeah, and then she makes dinner in this kind of like extended way, but in a very different vibe than what you see in something like Sean Dealman. And then it sort of ends. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an unformed project, but I, don't, I mean, I have my thoughts about it, but was, I don't know, Simon, did you, what, what did you think was sort of interesting or relevant about it? As you say, like, it's a very different uh, vibe in terms of uh, presenting this kind of domesticity. It's almost, it's it's quite, it approaches being quite idyllic at times, yeah. uh, even though my French is rusty, but you can pick up on some of the context clues about the weirdness of her described sexual relationship with her husband. Again, never seen. But uh, overall, like you, you kind of get the sense that uh, the Ackerman or the Ackerman character like enjoys being there and enjoys, uh, you know, being kind of a fly on the wall or slash participant or somewhere halfway in between. It doesn't contradict, though, I don't think it contradicts Jean Dielman in the sense that I never got the sense uh, revisiting Jean Dielman that it's any kind of, you know, polemic against uh, domesticity exactly. Uh, it's it's up to a lot more than that. And so I, I don't know. It's an interesting compliment um, in terms of in terms of getting a, a picture of Ackerman's view on these things. But uh, I have to say, just in terms of uh, just how how degraded the video and audio quality was. Uh, and lacking subtitles, uh, I, I don't feel uh, totally, uh, totally qualified to comment too much more on the themes other than to say uh, I, I'm not totally surprised. I wasn't totally surprised to learn that she had disowned it because it if only because it does kind of jut out from this set of films stylistically. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that's actually the most interesting um, thing about it for me, Going, to, getting to watch the film for the first time. I had never seen it prior to watching it for this. Um, it really is remarkable how different it is formally than the other material that she develops in this period, right? Um, like, we'll talk about the other ones next, but La Chambre and Hotel Monterey both ascribe to a fairly strict, like, structuralist film model. And I'll explain what I mean more with that later, but it's a kind of very, like, rigorous... Um, programmed aesthetic like fixed camera um or very designed like compositions um and then as she gets towards john dealman she develops the style where the the acting and the performance is very um how to say it like very theatrical but very minimalist very controlled very anti-naturalist and that really isn't what's happening here i mean here you have yeah. kind of much more sort of like naturalist performance styles which i actually think is maybe why she stepped away from ever using children again because you can't get this kind of brissonian like control over the the what the child is doing in the same kind of way and so the child just comes off as this very sort of like fun joyful presence in the film which is not exactly opposed to what Ackerman does later in her career, but it just formally, it works very differently. And the woman who gives the main, the main performance, she, again, it's a bit more of a naturalist performance style, even when the dialogue is a little bit more um, presentational than might be normal. And yeah, as you say, Simon, it just, it has a, a slightly different vibe than the lighter material. You also have a moving camera and the camera is placed. Yeah. In yeah. That she will never place a camera in ever again. Yes. So, and yeah. um, the, the, there's a specific shot where, I don't know, the, the, the lead is just lying around in bed and she's doing something with her hands and the camera like whips over to her hand to see what it's yeah. doing, which is just so not, so not the way. Uh, also, just from what you said, I just love the image of 21-year-old or whatever Ackerman telling the telling a seven-year-old, could you bring some more Brissonian distance to this, please? <laughs> more emphasis on gesture, less on intentionality. Yes, please. Um, yeah, exactly. And the actress's name is Claire uh, Watillon. Watillon um, is the lead, and we'll talk about her more later. But yeah, so anyway, so Ackerman makes this film, and then she moves to the United States, and that's where she meets uh, Babette Mengold, and... Um, I, and then I have a funny story about how she raises the money for um, Hotel Monterey, but let's come back to that. So Le Chambre, uh, maybe Justine, I don't know. Do you want, do, if, I don't know if, what you remember. I think it's been a little while since you've had a chance to see this film, but do you want to say anything about even what your sort of memories are of Le Chambre? I mean, I have a memory of most of the film taking place with Chantal in bed. And it's kind of like a perspective of a person who's in bed i feel like it's like it's like it's a yes. room it's la chambre it's like that's it and that's what i remember indeed la chambre is uh the i believe it's the shortest thing we're talking well, it's yeah it's about about the same length as la Paris. um it's uh it's about seven minutes long it's uh it it consists of very very slow pans on a one-dimensional axis left to right uh of this apartment now is it was it actually ackerman's actual apartment oh the deep recesses in my brain are saying that the space belonged to Bet mangold but please don't quote me on that because that's okay, just like very old knowledge spewing out of my head i have no Fair idea enough. if that's right as justine just said ackerman hangs out in bed and um you know in in one of the interviews that i uh, that i watched in preparation for this episode ackerman talks about her concept of suspense and what suspense means for her and how, you know, if, if the, you know, just paring it down to almost nothing to the point where just the, the prospect that the camera might move in a different mm. direction than it did a second ago, uh, that to her is, is, is suspense enough. And to my mind, this, this film is sort of the, it's her, it's her first 
it's her first take on, uh, you know, no pun intended on, on that kind of uh, suspense. And it's uh, in a weird way, it's sort of fun. Yeah, it is fun. I mean, which is a funny way to describe structuralist film, right? Um, And I feel like I I can give a bit of a breakdown of what we mean by structuralist film, but... um Okay, so yeah, maybe I'll just do that right now. So, so structuralist film is a term that, w- that was coined by a critic named P. Adam Sidney. Um, I forget what year he came up with that term, but he was describing a series of films um, made by people like Michael Snow, Ernie Gare, um, Hollis Frampton. Uh, I'm forgetting who the other people in the first wave were. Join in if anybody remembers more. Um, but again, as Simon said, these are these are filmmakers who, as Sidney described them, were interested in making films that had, were not particularly interested in questions of like illusionistic content, like what was happening in the frame and a reflection of the real world, quote unquote, real world. Um, and were instead interested in putting forth kind of concepts and ideas that would come out of the quote structure of the film. So how many shots are in the film? What is the relation of the shots to each other? What is the overall plan of those shots? These kinds of structural questions. And the most famous film that does this is Michael Snow's Wavelength, which uh, for people who haven't seen it, and very few people have actually sat down and watched Wavelength unless you are in a very specific film program. I think Justine and Simon and I probably all saw it back in the day, but it consists of a slow zoom over about 45 minutes across one room. It's a loft in New York. Um, and yeah, it moves forward. The camera moves forward very, very slowly over this space. And so the questions that it activates have to do with kind of space, but also the temporal duration of cinema. And that one as well, it has to do with questions of narrative because eventually you realize as you get close to the other side that there is, um, how to say, and there's sound that you hear that maybe implies a kind of narrative happening off screen. And then you zoom in solely on a photograph that maybe has a relation to this and et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a very kind of like oblique way of introducing questions about narrative, concept, space, time. And both Babette Mangold, Mangold saw a wavelength and said to her that it gave her the idea that you could use a film camera to engage concepts, which to her, she had never thought about before. And so this is kind of maybe the birth of this. And she shows not only that film, but also another really famous film by Snow called La Région Centrale, um, which is a four hour, I believe maybe four hour plus film shot in Northern Quebec, where Justine and I are right now. Uh, Not Northern Quebec, but we're in Montreal, but Northern Quebec is where this was shot. And it was done with a camera mounted on a mechanical apparatus that zooms around in different directions. And you see the sky and the landscape for four hours. And uh, just if anybody is wondering how hardcore Ackerman was, Ackerman and Mangle watched the film and then stayed and immediately watched it again. Wow. Because Amazing. they are <laughs> hardcore. So anyway, this was the birth of something like Le Chambre. And I think for me, what I love about Le Chambre and what it kind of gives you a hint early on of what Ackerman's going to do with structuralist film is that whereas many of those films are very kind of like dryly interested in questions of space, like Ernie Gare's um, Serene Velocity, it's like cutting back and forth in a hallway for 30 minutes or whatever it is. Ackerman is interested in these questions of space and the relation to the camera, but her spaces always feel very lived in. Like they always feel much more, as Simon has pointed out, like domestic spaces Mm -hmm. rather than these kind of like blank, non place architectural spaces that often populate a structuralist cinema. And so we get that sense here with Ackerman sitting on a bed, eating this apple. Um, And uh, other people can join in here if you want to add anything else to that. I was going to add a little bit about the overhead 
narration that well didn't what i was gonna there. add is that um like now that we're talking about the movie and talking about michael snow i feel as though of all of his films like you see the influence of everything but it's standard time which if i remember correctly the way it was made is they have the camera on a turntable because it moves and so the standard time is the radio when they're kind of repeating things and that to me is such a huge influence over this film in particular because it is like a fixed camera in a unique space but even for michael snow i would say standard time is like has a really jumpy narrative or like it's like something because there's like there's voices and there's a presence there uh and i feel like what chantal is kind of taking from that like as you've already implied is she's giving meaning to the space that i'm not sure michael snow is always doing standard time Mm -hmm. does feel very embodied because you have the radio so the radio itself becomes kind of a presence and just the ideas of what who would be listening to this having this kind of apartment and she is also kind of doing something that he doesn't do and a lot of the other structuralists that i've seen rarely do is she's putting herself in it as well Mm -hmm. yes which is to me to me like that's that's such a fun addition doing just to stick yourself in there like can you imagine if michael snow is hanging out in the middle of the room in wavelength but it, it, <laughs> totally even if he movie. were though it's like i feel as though it would have such a different implication than chantelle yeah and doing it as a very young woman and kind of an unseen presence in cinema generally even though there are of course like millions of beautiful young women on screen i feel like just there's there's something there that's very compelling and very different very intimate like vulnerable yeah Yeah, I mean I think that's a big part of it is this kind of I mean it's a mix of performance right because it's quite literally performance for her to be in the film but then also this sort of yeah like the the revealing the self-revealing she's literally in bed I mean it's a very it is a very intimate relationship and she's looking back at the camera and Mm -hmm. the the look doesn't I mean yes there is a little bit of a kind of confrontational aspect to it because anytime you look at a camera you have a bit of that but it doesn't feel particularly confrontational it feels more like curious or more sort of like welcoming or something the way she looks at the camera and um but then and people have written about this as well with La Chambre is the idea that like it kind of sets up something that runs throughout her cinema which is it which is a sort of weird like corporeal confrontation between her the director in the shot in this instance and the position of the spectator and we can talk about this a little bit more as we go because it's important in John Dealman but like the idea that the camera is so avowed and the position of the camera is so acknowledged in these films from this point on from and through Hotel Monterey etc um it really does something to draw out your own awareness of your position as a spectator right Mm -hmm. that you are you are kind of trapped and you are guided explicitly by the camera the camera is not avoiding its own materiality the camera is really like making it clear that it occupies a material position in a material space and then it's ackerman's bedroom i guess in this instance um and then the other fascinating thing which i have to admit i maybe knew this once upon a time but i had forgotten there are two official versions of le Chambre. there's one that's called le Chambre one and Lashon two. However, Lashon two is the only one that anyone has seen. And I didn't really understand why until going back to it now. And it's because the first uh, version, Lashon one, as Babette Mangold has confirmed, um, was a version that had sound attached to it. And so that, whereas the more common one is silent, the camera just moves around the space quietly, silently. The original one had a voiceover that Ackerman wrote for it. And I think Simon and I were both able to read it. And I won't read the whole thing, but um, I can kind of summarize it a little because honestly, it's very different than you would expect. And this is, again, probably why Ackerman decided to not use it. She much preferred the silent version. Um, And before I read it, I'll just say as an aside, 
said, I actually think it's really fascinating to go back to these early works in this context and kind of excavate a little of the idea of like Ackerman as an artist in development, because I do think that there's a bit of a tendency with John Dielman particularly to think about Ackerman as this like figure who emerged fully formed mm. from the head of Zeus, you know, as if she like didn't have any learning to do. And I think even though she is like, explicitly a genius she clearly was figuring things out here and figuring out what worked and what didn't um and i think the and so the voiceover that she originally had attached here it's in the kind of second person so she's speaking to some unnamed other character and it and it begins sort of after like a heated romantic encounter uh, and she's narrating like what happens after the other person leaves and she kind of goes out and she takes the train and she walks and she comes home um she discovers that the bed is covered in blood she masturbates she stops she begins writing to the lover in a very kind of like nice way and that's what it is and i mean i don't know to me this is quite unusual this um frame like for one thing it's Hmm. I don't know. I, it, it might be interesting to come back to that in the context of J2OL um, next week, because I think there's some direct links between next, what next month, Kate, we're not doing next this month. Sorry. Next month. Next month. <laughs> For the love I'm of gonna, God. I'm going to say that all year long. I'm going to forget every time. <laughs> but um, but I don't know. There was something to me about this kind of like explicit invocation of Ackerman sexuality in a textual way in the film that seemed very almost too at odds with a kind of structural like film modality, which I think is why she paired it back. But, um, but yeah, I just found that quite interesting. What I find interesting about this film, and I think all, all of Chantal Ackerman's early films in general is that in a way they almost, not that they predict social media, but they kind of invoke the subtext of scrolling through Instagram mm. where they like even explicitly when you're posting photos of other people or yourself there's this kind of understanding that you're alone in a room or you're alone with your phone even in a space that's surrounded by people and there's this like explicit loneliness to it and even like hearing about like what the actual text of her uh of the film would have been this narration it kind of it reminds me of like some of the weird things people write on an instagram photo <laughs> this is like a really weird story but my neighbor is like posting all the time his weird instagram stuff and he's constantly rewriting the captions like it's like he'll delete it he'll post the photo and he won't delete the photo but he'll con he'll like every 10 minutes like he'll change the the caption and there's this kind of like process of like understanding that like, oh, like in the end, you're just going to delete everything and you're going to leave the photo and there's going to be a blank. And I feel Chantal is kind of working. The images speak for themselves and the images kind of imply something that is so much bigger than this narration could ever imply because you're not fixing it into something that's concrete. There's something very elliptical and very mysterious about something that is unexplained and remains unexplained. Yeah, I think I wonder if if part of what's going on here too is this sense of like Ackerman as a filmmaker that her kind of the visual sensibility and the structural sensibility was really there very early on and the writerly just took a little bit more time to develop like her to figure out the yeah. relation between those two aspects. Yeah. One of the interviews I had read with Babette, she actually spoke about Chantal as a writer first and a filmmaker mm. second. And this was uh, when she was actually talking about the process of making Jean Dillman, which like we're always like kind of leading up to. But she was saying like Chantal is a writer and that's kind of at this stage of her life. Like that's kind of what she's working through and kind of understanding her from that point of view as, as someone who is a filmmaker, like obviously like as Kate said, like a genius, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. But he's someone who's kind of struggling with not necessarily struggling, maybe it's the wrong word, like working through the medium, which is so 
not words. It's not mm-hmm. a written medium. I took it as being sort of a mounting confidence and yeah. like, uh, you know, some, as, as would happen with any developing filmmaker. I mean, especially, uh, you know, someone in her position in the early seventies as a female filmmaker, we can't overlook, obviously that's, you know, something not a ton of women were doing and certainly not in experimental film. There's many reasons for trepidation, for half measures, for, you know, yeah. trying stuff out and not being totally sure you know, which, you know, which influences to lean on or how to express them or how to pick and choose or how to synthesize, et cetera. Uh, but I think, you know, having said all that, uh, it really is incredible the strides that she makes across these these films. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because this question of sort of like the writerly quality of it, it's like, I mean, obviously it's like it was there from very from the beginning, right? I mean, Sotmoville is a very like designed film in a slightly more, I mean, I don't want to say traditional because that's not correct, but it's maybe a more like quote unquote dramatic or like narrative sensibility than what you get in the structural films. And so she's very much kind of thinking in this writerly way. I do think that maybe what I see developing over the course of these films is her approach to deploying the written word in a very kind of idiosyncratic, very particular way that she has really figured out by the time she gets to Jean Dielman. And News from Home is the other film in the mix here that she makes in the early 70s that is the dialogue in that is comprised, um, I believe, entirely of letters that her mother sends her and maybe some she sends back to the mother, but I think it's just the letters from the mother. I haven't rewatched it yet. We'll circle Um, back to that. Yeah, we'll circle back to News from Home. But so really it isn't until you get to Jean Dielman that you have these questions about sort of like writing character dialogue because she isn't she doesn't even do that in Sotmaville like the character doesn't speak it's all this sort of overhead narration so anyway just to set that up but we'll come back to it um and then of course because we get to Hotel Monterey and Hotel Monterey is again silent it is a another kind of fairly strict strictly structuralist structuralist film although again you already will see here some hints of what she's doing that's a little differently um a little different and before I uh hear what other people thought about the film I did just want to add that the um backstory for the making of this film is incredible uh Simon do you guys and Justine do you guys know the story of how Ackerman like funded this film I have no idea no no No. idea so she worked at the uh like pornographic film theater on 55th street in New York in the early 70s while she was there you know going to see avant-garde cinema this is where how she was getting her money and even though she didn't admit this until many years later she just systematically shortchanged all of the clients coming to the film and over a few years she had amassed four thousand dollars to use <laughs> that <laughs> and whips she, and as she said she was like i just figured that the men coming to the theater would be too embarrassed to complain about the girl working at the counter taking their money <laughs> so she kept the money that's very much like um that's like straight out of the Werner herzog uh filmmaking yeah. ethos i feel like he'd he'd like that a lot and gotta give her credit she's smart enough to shortchange the clients and not the mafia that owns the cinema yeah, no no kidding right no kidding <laughs> i also there's like a whole essay in here about how that relates to um another experimental female film- filmmaker named betty gordon her film called variety which is an incredible film about a young woman working in a porn theater and another film that just came out a couple last year that was re-restored last year that i forget the title of it is working also girls about, is it working girls but no, but a young woman working in a, a porn theater. Working girls oh, is, the, is, yeah. the, is, the, is the brothel. Sorry, I was confusing. No, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the one you're talking about. I know. I've forgotten the title. But um, but anyway, there's definitely like an academic essay in there somewhere. But that is so boring. Sorry, that's my academic brain <laughs> kicking in. Um, 
Anyway, we'll come back to this uh, to talk about Hotel Monterey. So yes, I have thoughts about this. I was so, I loved coming back to this film. I was so pleased to rewatch it because I will admit that when I watched it in my master's 10, 15 years ago or whatever now, it completely went over my head. Like I just did not have a developed enough sensibility to make sense of this film, but I loved it now. Um, so I don't know. What, what were you guys' uh, thoughts about going back to Hotel Monterey? Actually, this was my first time seeing Hotel Monterey. Okay. So perhaps my thoughts will be less developed. The, the main things I noticed, but because because I watched basically all this stuff in a pretty condensed period of time. And I believe I watched Endealman first and then went back and watched the shorts. And it's, I do, I do think it's kind of, it's not quite schematic. It's not like, like totally, everything doesn't slot in neatly, but you do kind of see in each film sort of elements that end up making up Jean Dealman. And here you have the, um, what you can only describe as the Ackerman level camera, mm. which is, you know, she's not very tall. And it's sort of at her height most of the time. You have her love of doors and hallways. <laughs> yes. Uh, which she has talked about sort of uh, th- the way she described it in an interview, uh, something about like actually needing those feel- feeling like she needs, she's kind of leans on those spaces in the way, in the way she, expl- she explains it as a way to, it's a way to frame things, a way to give context and geography and things like that. And that's, I feel like this is where she really discovers that aspect of, yeah. of, of her filmmaking. This is where I notice, like, oh, like this, this is where that happens. And then it kind of, it kind of sticks around for Jean Dielman, which, which I did really like. Um, I also thought it, it, it's appropriate that we're recording this in October because uh, it's, it's spooky season, baby. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I just, I, all I wanted to do after watching this was uh, I'm not at home right now. I'm at my uh, parents' house uh, in rural Ontario. I just, I, I want to, bring my criterion dvds back home and just play it on a loop while i play like <laughs> creepy music over top because i think it'd be uh, a really good mood setter for the season i was literally gonna say this movie has like is is a horror film to a certain extent and i don't think it's like it's supposed to be creepy necessarily but there's something about the space that feels overlived like there's just there's so many like it's like that idea of like what a haunting is is like a ghost who had a traumatic death or something terrible happened at that particular time and place that hotel feels like that happened times mm. like a couple thousand mm. and i also um, just like hotels are just such liminal weird spaces yeah. at all times and this is an exceptionally it, I was, it really amplifies yeah that. that's what exactly what i was gonna say i'm like right now like there's this whole trend like on tiktok and you see it on instagram and uh twitter especially now because it is spooky season the the discussion of liminal spaces and I feel like of the canon of liminal spaces art, uh, Hotel Monterey is like has to be like near the top. There's something about it that is so in between worlds, so in between living and death. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of haunting. I know I've said that like ten times, but like it really is. And I feel that part of it is that it's it feels you you don't even if you don't know who Chantal Ackerman is and you're not really understanding the the perspective of this camera you still kind of sense that this is a person who is unseen even when you do have some of the people who are featured in the film do look into the camera yeah it's almost they look past it more than they look into it and there's something mm. so uncomfortable about that experience where you really sense that it's as if she doesn't exist and you, you feel that there's an emotional feeling associated with that, where you feel invisible, where you feel unseen. I, I think possibly the the 
apex of that to me is that the, that shot of the guy sitting very very still in a chair yeah that's which is exactly like just talk, you know just as still as any shot of any hallway mm-hmm. kind of unsettling to be honest Oh man, there's so many good things here. Um, I love the idea of describing this movie as uh, having to do with kind of haunting or like having this overlived quality. I I have to admit that none of that had occurred to me. I don't find the movie freaky at all. I find it totally like warm and lovely. But um, but this is but I but I completely can see it. I mean, I don't disagree. I think it's a great reading. And I think the idea of it being overlived ties into an aspect of this film that critics picked up on actually much later in Ackerman's career, because much later on, she really starts dealing more with questions of um, migrancy, refugees, um, uh, exiles. um, Borders. And so that borders. Yeah. yeah. And so that kind of question of sort of mobility and like forced mobility um, becomes more important later in her career. And so people have come back and seen this more here. And for people who haven't seen Hotel Monterey, the film takes place in, um, you know, what at the time was called a hotel for transients uh, on, I think, the Lower East Side in New York. I forget exactly where. Um, and, and she films in this hotel in this kind of like very programmatic way. So again, it's a structuralist film. She sets her camera up for long shots um, on very composed parts of the frame that she'll choose. And she she starts on the bottom level of the hotel. And there you actually see more people. So the first um, like third of the film, you tend to see more human bodies in it. It's daytime. There's people coming in and out of elevators. Although I think it takes place over a couple of days. And then slowly she moves up through the different levels of the hotel. And as you get up into the upper levels, it transitions from becoming it transitions from being about the exchange between the camera and people or between the kind of like really imposed structure that she's putting on the film and the sort of play or contingency of people being caught in the frame. That's like the first third. And then it transitions more into this like really strictly kind of minimalist film. And I can explain what I mean by that. But then as she gets up to the top, you get these really beautiful sequence at the end where she's now on the roof of the building and you get again, a kind of pan, of different parts of the roof and then it pans up to the sky and then you get a 360 degree pan and you see like the Hudson River I think um and it's really like gorgeous and stunning and there again you get this tension between like the interior of the hotel as a kind of space of like maybe safety and maybe kind of enclosure but also like cloistering and kind of like Mm. stress or freakiness and then up to the top where you get the sense of kind of freedom and openness and and that like paradigm, that di- dialectic, I guess, if you want to call it that, will run throughout Ackerman's films. And we can talk about it more with John Dielman because it's there as well. Um, but I wanted to explain a little bit about what minimalism is in this context, because that will matter too. Um, but I don't know. Did anybody have any thoughts about any of that that they wanted to add? I just wanted to add that when you do finally get outside, it is like, it is genuinely like, it's like an exhalation. It's like, oh, yeah. thank goodness we're out of there. <laughs> At least to me. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that's true. And like that tension too, between kind of like restriction and like kind of stress and tightness and then like explosion and like release is also a really important dichotomy that comes up a lot in Ackerman's work. Um, Yeah. It also, it's, and I'm just mentioning this because you're both in Montreal. It kind of made me nostalgic for hanging out on top of Mount Royal and just watching cars and buildings from the, from a distance and just. (laughs) You can do that on the CN Tower. You just go up to the top. Yeah, I have to the top of the tower. You go up to yeah. the top of the tower. You watch. You watch the river, and you see the baseball people, and you. <laughs> it's just not the same. <laughs> you oh, but actually, I like. I imagine now that view is like completely destroyed by all those condos. Anyway, it's not great. 
Yeah, I'm not sure it's quite the same um, anymore. But um, and in fact, and we maybe we could talk about this more with news from home because it's the most obvious there. But like, there is something so gratifying about this like 16 millimeter footage of New York in the early 1970s from Ackerman's films that is so wonderful and I love mm. so much. Um, but yeah, maybe there's more space to talk about that later. But um, but yeah, so this kind of question of minimalism, uh, I feel like I should explain it a little bit because it relates a lot to what Ackerman's doing here and the way that her work has been read, uh, particularly by this critic named Yvonne Margulies, Ravone Margulies, who uh, really kind of eventually sort of set the tone for talking about Ackerman's work. And I, we can, I can talk more about what she says about John Dielman because those are important discussions. But, um, but Margulies was one of the first critics to go back to Ackerman's work uh, post John Dielman and look at some of this early material and really put it in context with the avant-garde art scene at the time, not just structuralist film and not just European art cinema, but the, um, the New York art avant-garde um, and the debates around modernism and minimalism in this period, which I know sound boring, but also I'll try to keep this, <laughs> try to keep this tight. Um, so yeah, modernism, whatever, that's a larger question. And, and the key thing, to, <laughs> the key thing to understand here is that Ackerman really breaks down and like denies these divisions, but in the art world at the moment, there was this kind of like emerging fight between uh, a very particular set of modernist art critics like Clement Greenberg and um, Michael Fried talking about, you know, what is art? Greedberg thought that it was like um, painting and sculpture investigating the conditions of the medium. So everything gets boi bo uh, boiled down to sort of like, what is sculpture? What is the canvas? What is paint? Um, Fried has a little bit of a different take on it. But anyway, this is the sort of modernist idea of like art is always investigating its own conditions and doing so on a canvas or whatever. Um, the minimalists come along and are not interested in this. So this is thinkers, this is uh, artists like Robert Morris, um, Donald Judd, Carl Andre, Agnes Martin, different art, different artists. Um, and basically the ideas that get developed around this, and Michael Fried is actually responsible for kind of naming this really as a movement, even though he doesn't like it. The thinkers here come to believe that making art in this moment actually shouldn't be about these like questions of investigating the relation of different ideas, whether it's like pictorial elements on a canvas or what a medium consists of. Instead, they come to think that art is really about sort of taking a single shape, uh, a single concept, but often it boils down to kind of shapes and medium and like expanding it or just stretching it out or making it larger so that what you end up with is sculptures that are often like a single long cube or a cube like repeated multiple times or I'm afraid like a piece of felt or I'm, I'm not, these are whatever examples, but um, this is sort of the gist of the art movement here is the idea that what you end up with in that moment is if what you're doing with the art is just replicating a kind of um, a shape or a form over and over again, it really kind of puts the pressure on the spectator. It really changes the kind of dynamic of the art so that, you know, you can, you can absorb what this sculpture is in five seconds. You can look at it and you're like, that's a cube. So really what the experience of the art becomes about is the kind of durational and phenomenological experience of this specific spectator walking through that specific art gallery, walking around that cube, experiencing it. That itself becomes the kind of experience of the art. And Freed called this uh, theatricality. He actually really was against it. And it's interesting why he was against it. But um 
whatever. So this is sort of like the idea of minimalism is this experience of kind of stretching something out, boiling it down to the single element that you repeat, and then creating the space for a relationship between the spectator and the art. And this is important in minimalist music too, like Tony Conrad and Lamont Young and all these people. Anyway, that's a long way of getting to the point that uh, Margulies then comes along and says, this is what Ackerman is really doing in her work, is really boiling down certain shots, certain um, elements in her films into these very minimal qualities that then get stretched out in this really extreme way. And it puts the pressure on the kind of spectator. And the way that this works in something like uh, Hotel Monterey are these incredible shots that you really start to get more and more through the latter half of the film where Ackerman will like, you know, set up her camera in front of two elevators so that you see like the little portholes on the elevators, you see the gray of the two elevator doors, and then a line and a button. Um, and she'll leave the camera there for 10 minutes, right? You have a 10 minute shot of the elevators going up and down. And at first you're like, okay, this is an elevator. You get it right away. You know what it is. But after 10 minutes of watching it, it really dissolves into something else. You, you lose track of it as a kind of like representational image. And instead what you're left with is this kind of like set of like light and colors in front of you. It becomes like an object in and of itself. It's like a very materialist approach to the filmic image. So it's like a painting in front of you. It's like a modernist painting with a little bit of movement, right? So it's like, you know, David Lynch is like, what if paintings could move? And that's what led him into cinema. For Ackerman, it's like almost the opposite. She's like, what if you could make cinema into a painting? What mm -hmm. if you could make cinema into this mm -hmm. kind of set of like lights and colors? Um, and it's always, her cinema is always wavering between these two modes. She uses duration and time and stretching to kind of create the space between representation and the kind of like concrete material image in front of you. That was a long lecture. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're back. But it's, it was important. I feel like these are like key things to understand before yeah. you go into Jean Dielman. Well, before we can go into Jean Dielman, uh, I believe, uh, Kate, you wanted to at least give a description of a film that we right. cannot yet get our hot little hands on. Uh, despite our best efforts. By the way, if you happen to have, dear listener, a copy <laughs> of Le Quinzuit, um, shoot us an email. <laughs> yeah, we know it exists. And we, we know, know people have seen it in the past three years. So, Or there's a lot of goddamn liars on Letterboxd, which I'm not <laughs> ruling out. It's a cesspit. Uh, but at least we have uh, a description of Le Quinzuit. Yes, we do. And we, know, um, we know some things about it. We know some things about it. It it played as part of the retrospective that um, Adam Roberts and Joanna Hogg's programming collective, which is called Nos Amor, they did like a full retrospective of Ackerman's uh, oeuvre a few years ago, just before she passed away. Actually, I think she passed away during the retrospective, uh, which is deeply, that would not have been fun. Um, but anyway, so this played as part of that. And so I'm going to read Adam Roberts' uh, program notes for it because they've seen it and we haven't. So, um, so Adam Roberts writes, uh, Le Quinze Huit is another rarely seen film. In it, Ackerman presents a stream of consciousness in voiceover, that of a young Danish woman in Paris. She is there looking for work in an apartment that is not her own. Time passes and her thoughts are heard in seamless flow, evoking for some the world of Wolf's Mrs. Dalloway. But in Le Quinzuit, there is no party to prepare for. Instead, the contents of a handbag are the subject of her preoccupation, as are any number of other commonplaces. But there is also judgment and taking issue with and criticizing the woman's own body. Um, but since it's presented in voiceover, it's as if the locus of the criticism lies outside her own self, a trope that seems to emerge directly from the mirror sequence of L'Enfant Aimé. 
So again, yeah, these themes of kind of like interior, domesticity, women's relationship to themselves. Um, and I, I don't believe that there's another woman in this one, but I meant to mention about L'Enfant Aimé as well. You have the kind of emerging question of like female relationality, um, which isn't explicitly coded as queer in L'Enfant Aimé, but we'll talk about that more later. Um, but yeah, I really want to see Le Kenzmeet, so I'm hoping we can get our hands on it at some point in the future. Um, and then also, man, I have talked a lot, so you guys should talk about John Dielman for a while and then I can jump in. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy um all right well here we are at you know what and i'm gonna do this one time and then we don't have to do it again jean dealman 23 quai de commerce mille, uh, 1080 bruxelles 1975 Yay! yeah i only Get stumbled on. on that once um <laughs> ackerman is 25 and she does what all 25 year old filmmakers <laughs> does she makes a 201 minute uh, feature film in which the average shot length is about 57 seconds. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> well, maybe because when did you guys see this film for the first time? Like, what was your what was your relationship to it before the podcast? I saw it when I was in university at some point, but like kind of what you were saying, I'm not sure I fully absorbed it. I mean, I, I know I've watched it and maybe I slept through some of it. Like, that's, like, a, this, this is a recurring theme. Like, I slept through films. But, yeah, and I feel like I was too young, which is strange because I was probably her age. I was probably 25 mm. or, like, around there. I don't know. There's something haunting about it, even if you don't really get it. I don't know. I didn't have the – I guess I didn't have the frame of reference completely that I do now. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a decent chance you've seen Jeanne Dielman, et cetera. Um, but, uh, for those who haven't, uh, a, a, a brief breakdown. So, uh, the film star is Delphine Serig, who you may know from such films as Last Year at Marion Bad, another masterpiece. She plays the titular Jeanne Dielman, who is a widow living in Brussels, uh, with her teenage son. Uh, and obviously, uh, no man in the house, except of course, for the men that she brings in apparently every weekday at five o'clock, uh, for... Uh, you know, they have a, a, a transactional sexual encounter and they leave. Uh, we see this hat. Well, we don't you know, we'll talk about what we, what we do and don't see. But okay. the film takes place over the course of three days. And uh, let's just say things go somewhat awry around uh, somewhere on the second day. We can talk about when exactly that happens and the nature of what goes awry, because there's some interesting questions there. Um, and then after that, her her routines which we see in exacting detail the preparing food each day is another thing that structures each day is there's a different meal each day and we see her preparing them in in exacting detail these things that she does that are so uh so rigidly defined sort of start to break down and go a little bit awry and and her her uh her execution of them becomes uh becomes a little bit erratic uh and then of course we get an execution of a completely different kind uh, very near the end of the film, which we'll get to later, probably. I think the the, the main thing that I, uh, I I'm just looking down at my notes, and um, I think that the most relevant thing to maybe get us started is that uh, I have here in big block letters the word dissociation, and then after that in smaller letters in parentheses I've, I've added and geometry, <laughs> <laughs> and so that's that's my three word review if you count and of uh, Jean Dielman. <laughs> 
<laughs> dissociation and geometry. Um, all right. Well, yeah, I have like a gabillion things to say, but, um, but I mean, Justine, it sounded like you were implying that maybe you had a different relationship to it when you came back to it now. So did it have, did your new take on it have to do with dissociation and geometry? <laughs> it had to do with disassociation, not geometry necessarily, but like, I'm not really good at math. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like, I guess now as an adult that I, like I was, I was an adult at the time too, but like, uh, especially during the pandemic, which I, I'm, I assume partially inspired your, your, your long journey. Just like to me, Chantel Ackerman is a very lonely experience, mm. uh, where people are often in homes or in liminal spaces. And I just there's a there's an element of the film there's this kind of tension for me watching it now of the satisfaction of accomplishing tasks and also that element of disassociation where you have to disassociate to get through them mm. and I feel like for me rewatching it that is perhaps the central tension of the film of of something happens and like again we will talk about like what Chantal Ackerman has kind of argued is the the tipping point but something happens in the film that uh, throws off the routine and when that routine is thrown off you understand that the disassociation becomes much more difficult to maintain Mm -hmm. and I don't know if anyone has kind of gone through like the motions I'm sure we all have at some point there's something very challenging about being very numb and not engaged with your tasks or even like your life that when you start to come out of it is very difficult. It is incredibly emotionally jarring, but you often have to continue to do things because you're an adult. You have to feed yourself or others. You have to probably pay your taxes. Like there's all these things (laughs) that become impossible. Like they become impossible on almost a spiritual level. And I feel like that is kind of what's going on in this movie. There's, there's something untenable that happens that is very vague but it this this life cannot be maintained. Yeah. I, I can't imagine going through this pandemic that we've all been through and not having some understanding of the concept of like living on autopilot, which I've yeah. definitely spent entire weeks doing. Um, and this this movie does capture some of that spirit. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's actually kind of fascinating. I mean, I think the pandemic element is unavoidable going back to this film now because it's so much about a woman in this space that feels very, she, that it feels very imposed on her. And we can talk about what the relationship is of that to questions of feminism, because that's an important angle of this film. But um, yeah, this idea of it being imposed on her, her living in this routine as a way to just get through this imposition and this kind of struggle, struggle even isn't exactly the right word, but you know what I mean? Um, Get through this. And so it is, it is a very clear, like it's a very clear link to think about that in relation to our personal experiences of the pandemic. It's sort of hard to avoid. I think Ackerman would have actually been interested in our reading of this through the lens of the pandemic, because despite the fact that this film was so taken up by uh, feminist critics at the time, and I can explain more why, despite that fact, Ackerman has always been really ambivalent about reading it as a strictly feminist text. Mm -hmm. She finds those readings quite limiting. And for her, she's always talked about the fact that the beginning of this film and for her, the heart of it is the fact that it is about this question of what it means 
to for someone to organize their life in such a way so that there is never a moment of free time, that there is never a kind of space for free subjectivity, for free thought, for however you want to describe that creativity, openness, whatever, to remove that possibility entirely from your life by ordering everything in this extreme way. Um, because as she said, as soon as you fail to do that, as soon as there is a hole in the order, the anxiety erupts. And there are different kind of readings as to what is going on with this, perhaps the most oblique one. And we don't really need to talk about it here because it only makes sense much later in Ackerman's career, but it has to do with the fact that Jean, um, implies at one point, and she doesn't imply, she says her family was killed in the Holocaust. So she became an orphan when her parents died in the Holocaust. She married quite young. As a result of that, she lived with her aunt. So there is this kind of like briefly implied aspect of the sort of larger European histories of horror behind this anxiety, this unnamed anxiety that drives Jean to be and act a certain way. But that reading really didn't become prevalent until much later in Ackerman's reception. Mm -hmm. Early on, it was really the kind of like strictly feminist reading. Le film est fait à partir enfance que j'ai enregistré. J'ai vu des femmes de dos, penchées, mmh. portant des paquets. Et si vous voulez, ce que je pense qui est différent de... Un homme n'aurait pas fait ça, je pense. Un homme, parce que dès son enfance, on lui apprend que les vraies valeurs sont pas là, qu'on fait pas de l'art avec une femme qui fait la vaisselle. Et moi, j'ai pas pris le contre-pied consciemment. J'ai fait ce qui m'intéressait. Et ça donne le résultat de ce oui. film. I mean, I just want to say about the film, and it's very clear. I think it's, I do believe Chantal Ackerman has actually discussed this, and over the course of her career, she obviously has a very close relationship and fraught sometimes with her own mother. And I mean, watching this movie, it it doesn't necessarily remind me of my mother, but my great aunt and that kind of generation, which would be closer to Delphine Serig's age as well. And there's this kind of homage to them. It's not necessarily a critique of their yeah, life yeah. necessarily, and I think probably that is at the root of her resistance to it being a feminist critique because it is not necessarily critical in the sense of oh we need to dismantle this there's something much deeper at work within this movie that kind of inter interlocks a lot more complexities because obviously in the way that Chantal Ackerman lived she was resisting this narrative for her own life mm -hmm. but in resisting that narrative for her own personhood she wasn't necessarily rejecting it completely yeah. there's there's something where she's trying to maybe understand it or trying to to bridge a connection to the the women that were around her I, like like Chantal I also grew up in a very like I only have sisters I have mother the people who raised me is my also my great aunt who also like just it's a very matriarchal situation and there is a lot of domesticity and there's a lot of routine and it's like if I think of my great aunt she was somebody who obsessed like she would wake up every day and like from the moment she woke up in the morning to the time she went to bed, every second of her day was occupied in a way that like is unfathomable to me. And trying to understand that is not like, oh, isn't that awful? It's like, no, that was a lot of that is a choice. Like it's it's not it's it's you can argue it's a coping mechanism or whatever, but there's something in there that is also almost magical. Like I, like I, to me as a as a young person, I'm like, oh, like. How can you have how can you have so much fullness to mm. the life that you're living, even if they're like tasks like cleaning um like the spoons? Like that's what my great aunt would do too. She would clean her spoons or 
like there was always something to be done and i'm like there's probably stuff to be done in my apartment and i don't (laughs) the other thing to me that i think stands in the way of uh lots of things stand in the way of any kind of simplistic like we needed we need to tear things down uh feminist narrative i think another one is the the relationship between uh delphine uh sorry between jen dealman and her son sylvain Mm -hmm. uh is really interesting uh and like on one hand it is definitely there that you know he relies on her to do these daily to, to do these daily tasks to make this exacting dinner, and he kind of just expects that it will materialize and it'll be there for him, uh, etc. So that is, uh, as Kate was saying, an imposition. On the other hand, they they do there is some some warmth and some tenderness there, even if it is kind of you sometimes need to go excavating for it. And of course, this leads to an incredible scene of dialogue uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, uh, which to my mind signposts like I, we were talking earlier about Ackerman as writer. And that's sort of one thing I I'm, I'm, I'm longing for from the films that we'll be talking about later is I love her dialogue. I love the, the, the stuff that she gives people to say. Uh, and there's, there's so precious little of it in this movie. And every time we get a morsel of it, I'm like, Oh, I, it makes me want to like, it, it's there's some stuff coming down the pike is all I'm going to say that I'm really <laughs> excited for us to talk about. Uh, and it makes me sad when people, um, including Ackerman herself, um, you know, the, in, in a, I think it's the 2009 interview at the tail end of it, she's talking about Jen Dealman and she says, you know, maybe I never bettered it or something, something to that extent. And it kind of made me sad because like, I think she kind of did, but we'll get there later. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that question of like whether she oversurmounted her own masterpiece is a big one. And maybe we can keep asking that all year, actually. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's like so much to talk about here. So I think, A, my, my, hmm, it's interesting. So I want to talk about the feminist reaction, but I also feel like I kind of need to, I want to push back a little on the readings of it as wholly positive about the relationship of oh, Jean to, yeah, to I, housework and everything, too. Cause that's, yeah, I feel it's, like, it's yeah. between them. Yeah, it's 100%. Between them, exactly. There's yeah. a tension there. And it's like, because yeah. she doesn't know how she, it's almost like she doesn't know how she feels about it. Indeed. Yeah. And I don't think, and I think it summarizes Ackerman's relationship to this material too. I mean, I think her whole, a lot of her artistic work can be summarized under this kind of extreme tension and push pull and love hate between the idea of wanting to be on the quote inside and wanting to be in the domestic space, in the relational space. And then when she's there feeling cloistered and feeling like she isn't connecting to people around her. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a cycle. I don't mean to psychologize, but I do think that that thread is there throughout her entire career. Um, but sorry, Simon, were you going to say something before I jump in? It looked like you wanted to interject. Oh, no, I just wanted to say like, it's, it's definitely not like a wholly positive thing. I, I guess we, 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 I, we have the tendency to say, well, it's not this. And so anyway, it is, <laughs> it's all happening folks. It is all happening. And Ackerman's work, as someone who's now published like multiple times on Ackerman, I can tell you that she is one of the most difficult artists to write about because of exactly this. You cannot make like statements about her work because as soon as you think, well, I'll say this about Ackerman's work, you immediately realize that like that doesn't cover something she's explicitly doing in opposition to it. It's very challenging. But anyway, um, but yeah, so the kind of like feminist reception of, of Ackerman's work is I mean, it's so integral to understanding the longstanding life of John Dealman, the kind of popularity of it, its importance to film history. And a lot of it has to do with it arriving in 1975. 
right at this kind of crux moment in the birth of quote feminist film theory. And so prior to that, you have a kind of like earlier wave of uh, feminist film theory, which involves people like Molly Haskell and, um, oh, I'm forgetting some other names, but other people can jump in. And the way that that uh, moment is talked about is basically critics kind of drawing more or less like sociological or clear lines between representations of women in films and how those like reflect or don't reflect real life, right? The idea that like a feminist politics of film would involve better representations of women on screen, more accurate representations judged against some idea of life. Who gets to decide what real life is and what represents it is of course an immediate question. And that school runs into real problems immediately as it does in questions of like racial representation too, et cetera, et cetera. So that's sort of where we are at. And then just as Jean Dielman is um, emerging, you also have, is arriving, you have the emergence of the kind of next generation, if you want, I guess, of um, feminist film theory, which is of course, mostly marked by Laura Mulvey's very famous essay, um, Visual Pleasure and, oh my God, Narrative Cinema? I can't believe I'm forgetting the official title. Is that it? Visual Pleasure Narrative Cinema? Anyway, whatever. Laura Mulvey's like incredibly famous 1975 article. It is something like the fifth most cited article in the humanities. It's like a very major contribution to the history of thought. And Laura Mulvey brings in psychoanalysis, semiotics, and questions of feminism to basically kick off this idea that like the next wave of feminist thinkers wouldn't be talking about like literal representations of women in film, but would instead be talking about the way that film, film language, patterns of um, the way things are communicated in film, the way ideas and images are set up in film, that all of those contribute en masse to the way our broader ideas and possibilities for thinking women come into being, right? This is the kind of analytic, structuralist, uh, semiotic uh, way of talking about signification. And so Mulvey does this. And basically the idea very immediately is that Ackerman's film is the kind of standard bearer for this mode. Because Ackerman's film is, is like, yes, on the one hand, it's about a housewife. And so there is this obvious kind of like link to representations about women and a kind of invisible set of forms of life that really never made it onto the screen. And this is part of the why it was taken up so explicitly by the early sociological feminist critics as well, as they were like, why would no one ever makes films about housewives? The fact that Ackerman flips the ratio where she shows the housework in such detail, but hides sex and hides the prostitution was a really big deal. So it's first taken up by that group. And then it is equally and even more so taken up by the group interested in signification because Ackerman's film, and we haven't talked about this yet, but Jean Dielman rejects things like shot reverse shot. Mm -hmm. It rejects things like the close-up. It rejects this whole language of classical Hollywood cinema that according to people like Laura Mulvey, and this is arguable, but according to people like Laura Mulvey and the other psychoanalytic critics, quote unquote, like sutures the audience into the film. So it gives you this very voyeuristic perspective where you don't actually occupy any physical place in the world of film. You occupy this like transcendental view on everything. You get to see everything from the best angle. You're always exactly where you need to be. The film is giving you this like perfect vantage. And so you're hidden. And so you have this very voyeuristic relationship to what's happening. And as Mulvey points out, that often plays out along gendered lines where it's like a quote unquote male position looking at the female who's like displayed. Ackerman's film, of course, rejects this entirely. We have this like very fixed camera, very fixed spectatorial position. Jean is like visible wholly. We have a kind of relationship to her that isn't voyeuristic. Um, anyway, that's a lot. And I can talk about that more. But this is why the film was taken up so much by feminists. 
I mean, I haven't read the Laura Mulvey in a minute, but like we studied it so much. And one of the interesting questions that I remember us discussing as a class was this idea of kind of what you're what you're discussing, the that to create quote unquote like a feminist film or to create a film that is contemporary would explicitly have to reject the narrative language of Hollywood cinema filmmaking. And the big question is, is that even possible? Because I think it's like, we do discuss this movie as kind of breaking all the rules, but you could even argue it's like, how do those rules, how do you articulate them? Because at the end of the day, you're still using, if you're using representational cinema rather than something like Sand Brackage or something that's much more abstract, you're still playing into some of the tropes intentionally or unintentionally. And I think it's like, that's why it's like when when we're kind of discussing positive and negative representation as the film, I feel like that's almost the, it's not the the right question to ask, yeah. even though we are kind of indulging it, um, at least I am. It's, it's more, is this film following is conventions or is it breaking them? And I think that that there's, there's something there that's so, because the movie is still like, it's like, you can still see, explain what's happening. You can still yeah. see what's going on, yeah. but it's kind of it, echoing what you were discussing earlier about minimalism and kind of reducing everything to its like bare essentials and putting the onus on the viewer. But in this sense, you also have a character rather than just a shape and an object and all of the socio-political, social-cultural implications exactly. of what that is. And so it is very difficult to interpret because you were, everyone's bringing their own baggage, basically. And uh, I guess another thing there is that she there's even though this, the film sounds very pared down, which it is in a lot of ways, there's still a lot of things that suggest meaning for you to latch on to. My favorite example yeah. of which, and I have this written down in all caps, is the irreplaceable button. Um, <laughs> the uh, the button that comes out of her From coat. Canada. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, and, uh, like, I mean, that to me seems like a, like a, like a pretty obvious, like this has symbolic value, by the way, (laughs) kind of, kind of thing. It's not all distance. Well, I would say in general, one of the things that underestimated about Chantal Ackerman's film is she does actually have a sense of humor. Like, I don't Mm. think that, I think that there is like, we're not going to say like it's a laugh fest, but there is a sense of irony and there is a sense of like understanding that, even though like the button like sub narrative is clearly important to a certain extent, there's also something absurd about it. And perhaps even Jeanne is aware of it. It's just, she's on a journey. Like she's like, I have to just like solve it. It's like, do you know when you're like thinking of an actor's name and you, you just can't get it. Mm -hmm. It becomes an obsession. Even if it doesn't, it really doesn't matter if you can't remember the person's name, you can't get it out of your head. And like, that's kind of that button narrative and her, making those conversations like explaining why she needs the button and mm-hmm. the logic behind it well you know they always say europe is what 10 year, five or 10 years behind north america so i thought that i would be able to find it like these little like tidbits of like understand of like trying to understand her world and justifying her logic and why she's going to go to like i don't remember how many places she goes to find it which just does kind of feel like a waste of time, but you're also like, I kind of would do that too if I was like, started it. Well, I think, so there's, I mean, there's a lot here that we can dig into, but I think already at that point in the film, we're, we're pretty deep into things going off the rails. So when Jean goes on her epic like button expedition, it's item number 100 in her, mm. what is really the only quest that she has at the core of it in the entire film, which is to fill up her time. 
right? Is to prevent there from being free time. And if that means that like, so maybe we should do this point and introduce this idea is that at about the midway point in the film, it becomes clear to the spectator that things have started to go off the rails in John's order. And there's different kind of ways that that's communicated to us. Um, a lot of it happens in the frame, in the kind of representational elements. And um, Justine, you're 100% right that, of course, the representational and the illusionistic quality is so much a part of this film. That This is what I mean when I say it's impossible to say mm-hmm. one or the other thing about Ackerman, because they're both held um, in tension here, the illusionistic and the kind of concrete material aspects of the film, the minimalist stuff. So we can keep talking about that, but I just wanted to say you're 100% right. Um, so anyway, you, you start I'm sorry, to... I just like, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was like, I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I got like, like <laughs> I'm like, authority figure telling me how good I am. I love it. Like, I was like, I miss that. You're such a good teacher. Oh, <laughs> I love <man>. it. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm, I'm blushing back in a classroom. So there we go. We all miss being back in a classroom, maybe. Okay. So yeah, the, when things start going off the rails, a lot of it you see, um, in Jean's behavior and the kind of system of what she's doing starts to go awry. She's starts being able to not she can't like button up her jacket properly she starts dropping a fork she stops um the potatoes get burned like things that would normally be part of her kind of clockwork hyper efficient system just go off and once one little thing goes off it starts to throw everything else off in this like ever accumulating way and by the time you get to the third day she's left with these kinds of like open spaces in her day that are as you can tell very like disabling for her like very kind of anxiety producing they really start to create this like very strange kind of quality seeping up from the bottom um and we can come back to the question of anxiety because i want to dig into that a bit more but i was also going to say you also start to get like filmic language shifts so for the first half of the film um there's this incredible pattern that ackerman sets up in terms of how she films jean where the camera is always present in the room before jean gets there the lights are off jean arrives in the room she turns on the light jean does her activity and the camera stays with her in a single shot from the beginning to the end of the gesture, right? This is like the longness of the long takes in the film is that you see Jean peel potatoes from beginning to end over 10 minutes, or you see her do whatever in a room from beginning to end. That maybe you can tie into kind of like gesture and like the task oriented dance um, material that was coming out of the avant-garde in that moment. There's some interesting connections there, but whatever. But then at about the halfway point of the film, this starts to break down and all of a sudden you'll have the camera in a room before Jean gets there. Like you'll have the light, Jean will forget to turn the light on and off like these kinds of things start to go bad at the formal level as well as the representational level and then there's these questions of what sets her off um and we were talking about the button oh i had other things i wanted to add but whatever let's just get to this question about what sets things off and then we can come back yeah to the this is the, truly the the greedo shot first question <laughs> of the ackerman <laughs> philosophy <laughs> Uh, so I, this was a question I brought up before we before we started recording because I wanted to see if there was something here, and it seems that there is. Um, so I thought I was losing my mind because I was watching – I watched Jen Dielman, and then I watched her 2009 interview where she talks about Jen Dielman. And in her detailed plot description of what happens in the film, she says uh, on the second day with her second client, she has her first ever she spe- she specifically says her first ever orgasm um which is not seen in the film this is not depicted in any way shape or form in the film literally we see her go into the bedroom and then we cut to presumably half an hour later when he leaves uh what we do see is that she does have an orgasm apparently uh with the third client the one who she stabs in the neck with scissors um <laughs> So spoiler alert. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, 
Yes. If we're, we're in Star Wars territory right now, like you yeah. have to like you have to warn people. Indeed. Uh, so, um, so I I watched the film and then I watched her interview and I thought, wait a second, did I like micro nap during part of this movie and miss an orgasm? So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, so I, I literally I went back and I I I, I scanned back there. I said, no, she's making shit up. <laughs> no, but I mean, I don't. know. I just thought that was a fascinating uh, parenthetical. Uh, yeah and it's funny because like i had because simon is the one who brought it up but i was reading earlier today and i ran across a written interview where she talks about it and i kind of had the same reaction as you except i didn't have the follow-through of actually going back and rewatching it i just assumed i had like missed something and i'm like oh maybe cause the movie's three like three is three hours three twenty yes yeah. so i'm like you know what like there's a i didn't watch this in a big screen like i'm at home like there's a, my focus must have been shifted I didn't see that um, and I didn't feel that but I mean one I think it's like Kate has kind of talked a little bit about this like well, she's not a reliable narrator of her own film life and I think nobody is yeah. it's like unfortunately like, not unfortunately I think the reality of creating art is that you are often operating on the level of instinct and you are op- often operating on a level of like so much extra diegetic knowledge because you are so deeply into it and with the passage of time and discussion and like this is a, a movie that has been written about and talked about to death and i'm sure that 90 percent of the interviews Chantal ackerman has done in her entire career people have asked her about this movie things get rewritten and i don't know because I, like the interview that i had read i wish i could remember exactly where but it is in the past 15 20 years as well so both of them are fairly recent mm-hmm. mentionings of this. And I would be very curious to see if you go back before the year 2000, if that is something that she discusses in interviews. It is possible that it is something that was always in her mind and she only felt the confidence or she was only interested in invoking it later on. Um, but I, do, I, I don't necessarily sense that that's something that is explicitly in the text. Not only don't sense this, I'm pretty sure it isn't. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not explicitly in the text um, because you, all you get when she uh, takes the Johns into the apartment is that they go to the back. You see like the door to her room down the corridor, and then they go in. The door closes, and it cuts to night. It's this like very clear not night. It cuts to a darker room, so you get the sense that like an hour has passed in the hallway, but that's it. Um, it's a very clear like ellipses. Like you will not see this um, until you get to the last day when it's shown. But yeah, it's not in the text, and I think. I think Justine, you're absolutely right that I think Ackerman maybe only added this tidbit much later in her answers to these questions. And maybe it was that she wanted to keep it back early on because again, as I've maybe already implied, feminist reception of the film was so hellbent on paying attention explicitly to the idea of like the sexual politics in relation to like the patriarchy and these kinds of ideas that I think maybe she knew to not say anything about that because it would have been interpreted uh, in a certain way, even more so than it's being now. And I think having read Ackerman's general kind of discussions about these this film over the years, I actually think it's very likely that even if Ackerman, as she did, as Ackerman said, oh, well, it was an orgasm on the second day, I think Ackerman also would have been as likely to say, but that isn't the cause of what goes wrong. Like that isn't the cause mm. that leads to everything no. else going wrong. What it is instead is 
an early expression of the order already having broken down. Because this is the sort of like way that I have always been, um, I've always engaged with this film and, and my understanding of the film has always been, and many other critics I think as well, is that this question of like when the breakdown starts is, um, it's like a MacGuffin, right? It's <laughs> that you're, you're not supposed to kind of like put that much emphasis on what this, as if there was a single origin or a single cause. The idea is, is that Jean is engaged in this kind of metaphysical battle that's a losing battle. Like you cannot order your existence in this extreme way and, and you can try, but it's not going to happen. Um, and so the idea that like, there are little things that start to appear in the frame much earlier on in the film that that already push a little at the idea that John is living this perfectly ordered life. Like I think maybe the second or third shot of the film when she's setting the table for dinner with Sylvain, she she drops a napkin briefly and, and has to pick it up and do it again. Like there are little things like this throughout that just seem to kind of gain in this sort of like ever expanding logic as the film goes. And by the time you get to the second day, sure, maybe that represents as her having this orgasm, which then again, continues to throw things mm -hmm. off and continues to throw things off. Um, and so for me, I'm like, I'm a little skeptical about it as this sort of like <laughs> Greedo shot first kind of thing. But I do think that it is an important kind of element, this question of like the sexual relationship to the idea of order and what is being repressed by this like extreme imposition of order or sex absolutely plays a role in that question. Yeah, and I think it's like what is very important to kind of note um, also on Criterion Channel. What a great service. Um, <laughs> I watched uh, Autour de Jean Dillman, which is the kind of the behind the scenes that was shot at the time, but I believe edited later by Chantal Ackerman, where you see, I think it's about an hour long, um, a lot of her discussions with Delphine and how they're going to. We're, we're going to, Justine, we're going to talk about it at length on a later episode. Okay, but of the I'll, show, I'll, but, yeah. but give a preview. Go yeah, ahead. But, but what I'm quickly going to say is, in that behind the scenes, it is actually very clear. This is not a movie that is like random. Like it's not like, okay, so Delphine, you're going to boil yeah. the potatoes. This is precise. And there are very extensive conversations going on behind the scenes as to the like minutiae of how Delphine is going to move her body and move her face and interact with the space. So when we're talking about a dropped napkin, like it sounds like, oh, she like, it's like, improv or she mm. just dropped it and she went with it it's like the chances of that are like zero to none like yeah. it's it's like it's an it's not an accident and we can discuss like okay so why this obsessive like almost compulsion to like and like we could talk about the reflections of the filmmaker who is compulsive in trying to control human bodies like like let's talk about that that is a very difficult thing to do and she's working with like i would say one of the best film the best actors who's ever been on screen who is so astute and so intelligent and so she she's very much on the same page even as if they have a bit of back and forth like it's it's not like yes i'll do everything you say chantal like there's kind of a searching yeah. understanding there so we're talking about something that is not accidental like none of this none of the film is made in that kind of void it is it is kind of like it is like a painter like every stroke mm. is there on yeah. purpose even when we're talking about Haunt hotel monterey and like all of her films like the the thing that is so fascinating by using cinema as a medium to create this compulsive kind of art like compulsion is the wrong word but like like the the kind of what you were talking about earlier about like minimalism and form and all of these things is that cinema largely defies your ability to do that because mm. time is you can't control time and also 
when the second you have living things in your shot, you, even if you can control them to a certain extent, you can't completely control them. Mm-hmm. And so there is that level of unpredictability as well. I'm uh, I'm really glad you brought up how uh, that, that that's pretty much exactly what I was going to cut in with is just to say, in case anyone at home thinks that mm-hmm. any of this is, you know, being read into or, you know, this is just these are just accidents being captured. Like, no, Ackerman was very precise about everything she wanted to do. And she was very precise about casting De Vince Rig. Yeah. Um, and she's she's talked plenty about how you know she was cast for her the combination of her I guess star quality or what, whatever you'd like to call it that she is not the sort of uh, per, not the sort of uh, person you'd expect to see performing these tasks and indeed according to Delphine Zereg, she really had she'd never made coffee in her life <laughs> like that should tell you something like she probably hadn't made veal cutlets either um and yeah, so wait, like yeah i don't want to go too far but like there's a in the hotel de jean Dilvan, they have such an extensive conversation on how the proper way not only the, the proper yeah. yes and like not only the proper way but the way that this character would do mm. it because delphine is also quite stubborn and she's like no i would never do it this way but you kind of have a sense <laughs> you have a sense that she just doesn't want to get her, she wants to like touch the cutlets as little as possible like there's kind of like this implication yeah. she's like no it would be like the tips of the fingers and mm. Chantel's like no you use your whole hand and yeah. Jean, uh, Delphine's like no just the tips just the tips <laughs> it did make me a little sad that the, that uh, these veal cutlets were made before the invention of the wet hand dry hand method that uh, comb chefs would come up with later but um, uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that our episode on Jean Dielman has the one male co-host giving us cooking tips that's incredible <laughs> um, I'm like, what is this method I want to know more about it Anyways, uh, keep going. You can Google it at, at, at home, folks. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, the, when we're talking about these uh, these long takes of her, for instance, peeling potatoes, um, the the other thing that I want to impress upon people, um, whether or not they've seen the film, is that like you would never, even though it sounds like this notion of having someone doing these seemingly banal tasks for a long time might. Uh, in theory, tempt you to, to use the word naturalistic, but there is yeah. nothing naturalistic about this movie. It is so constructed and yeah. so rehearsed and so precise. And that's I, I, that's another one of these sources of tension that I find so fascinating. Yeah, it's like, it's the, the idea that, um, and uh, well, I want to come back to this question of precision to talk about uh, the scanning, the frame for what starts Jean's breakdown. But the term that is that people have come up with for what you're talking about there, Simon, is... Um, hyperrealism. Mm. I don't know if you guys have heard this term used in relation to Ackerman and people I think through no fault of their own see that term written down and they think that what it means is just a sort of like super realism <laughs> like it's like an ultra realism. Yeah. But that's actually not what the term means in the in the context of it being applied to Ackerman's work. It's another term that's taken from the art world mm-hmm. and it refers to it refers to a kind of presentation of subject matter that is itself already mediated or already an image or like already worked over in a certain way. So it's like a Richard Estes painting of a photograph. And here it's like Ackerman presenting an image of reality. It's presenting a kind of theatrical version of reality, but no less engaged in the idea of realism or what reality is for that purpose. It's just part of this kind of thing in the mid-century of the fact that like reality is mediated, that we don't have some kind of like direct access to the real. We have access to the representations of the real. And so those are as much a question of what the real is as anything else is. Um, And so that's an important aspect of this. But I was going to say too, the question of like, yeah, the, the precision of Ackerman designing every gesture and every element of the frame in this incredibly like insanely <laughs> tight way. Um, 
I think it brings us back to an important idea of the film as well, which is that back to this kind of question of the sort of like phenomenological relationship of the viewer to the screen. And the fact that very early on in this film, you realize pretty quickly that like when a new shot starts with some exceptions, you're going to be in that shot for a while. And so you kind of very quickly get the information that it gives you. It's like, Oh, it's John and her son sitting at the table. But then, you know, pretty quickly you're like, okay, well, what else is there to look at? Or what else am I going to engage with in this shot? Because they're often doing very little action in the frame. They're not doing very much, or if they are, they're just repeating the same action over and Mm -hmm. over again. So your attention kind of starts to wander and you're looking at other things. And sometimes maybe that means the image breaks down like it does in hotel Monterey into colors and lights. But I think other times, I think Ackerman is very um, cannily turning the viewer into a kind of detective to like look at, like to pay attention to these questions of what is driving Jean to do what she does. And I think that this, there's two ways to get at that question. One is this idea of like looking to see what the initial object is, the initial break that sets her off and throws the pattern off, right? You're scanning the frame. And I would talk about this at length if I could, but I'll just introduce here that this is absolutely something that Todd Haynes picks up on in his very explicit kind of like remake of um, Jean Dielman in the film Safe, which if people haven't seen Safe, it's another of like one of the best films ever made, I think absolutely one of the best films in the nineties. Um, and he very much kind of redoes Jean Dielman in a slightly different context there. And again, picks up this idea of what it is that sets off his lead character into this environmental illness that she deals with. Um, so you have this, this idea of us scanning the frame, but then I think this is all the more important. And this is kind of like another big idea that we haven't really talked about yet in the film for the fact that, I think you have to be very careful when you talk about John Dielman to ascribe the character anything like a straightforward subjectivity or interiority. Mm-hmm. It's Ackerman is very much putting under question the idea that Jean even has subjectivity, that like she even is a kind of character like you would find in any other film. And some of that has to do with the fact that she really kind of denies the processes of identification that Hollywood gives you, right? No close-ups, no like dialogue that tells you what a character's thinking she rejects all of that but then also the fact that jean's like actions are just so inexplicable like that they that the way she acts isn't um reducible down to the idea of like an interiority that gives her quote motivation that drives what she does right it's like even that that point you guys were talking about earlier where she does the kind of button monologue to the woman at the counter i i don't read that as a kind of sign of like jean's interiority in a straightforward way i Mm -hmm. read it as the, the fact that she devolves into this weird monologue as yet another example of like her order going off the rails it's yet another weird example of jean talking too much at the wrong time to a stranger about like nothing that matters it's it's just another strange example of this woman who like is is kind of alien like she's kind of an alien figure we just don't anyway i have more to say about that mm-hmm. but just i'll throw that out as a prompt <laughs> it, it, it also kind of felt to me like a like a mirror reflection of the scene where uh her i guess her neighbor uh deposits yeah. deposits uh, they, they there's another routine that happens where a baby is deposited and withdrawn and we have this unseen neighbor delivering a similar Chantel ackerman by the way that's ackerman oh, at there the we door. go yeah. i didn't know that um <laughs> delivering uh, a similarly kind of aimless uh monologue and it, it's yeah. almost like it's it's i don't know it's almost like her passing on the same gesture to another person there's your horror movie angle again it's like the strange uh, mm. thing that infects people and travels around <laughs> I mean, I never even realized that, like, Safe has that connection. And it's another movie that I watched fairly recently. And it's it's so obvious now that you point it out. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I actually had seen today that, like, I wasn't aware that, like, Chantal Ackerman had always wanted to make The Price of Salt. 
which mm. of course is Carol. Um, yeah. And thinking of the relationship between those, both of the filmmakers who are, I would say quite different in terms of their approach and safe is very, very different as well. It's very Todd Haynes. It is not mm. Chantal Ackerman like, but kind of, I feel both filmmakers to a certain extent are often, they have different obsessions and they have different fascinations. And yet are, when we're talking about like identification and subjectivity and characterization, I feel as though they're often trying to underline kind of something similar, which is an anxiety about modern life. Mm -hmm, And they look to different sources but they're not really pinning on sources it's like if you watch like a lot of Todd Haynes films there's always this very explicit sickness or poison like yeah. obviously it's a movie called poison but like there's a lot of poisons in his films there's a lot of sickness there's uh the AIDS crisis we have um the unknown illness that Julianne Moore has in safe mm-hmm. that also has no source right and there's this this community of people who are similarly sick and they kind of all convene into a new community and a very feminine as well uh feminine coded and i feel like Chantal ackerman has a very similar thing just often like you kind of say like to say that oh jean dillman is doing this because because her family died in the holocaust or because her hus- her husband had died feels glib like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't really apply in a in a like cause and effect type of way yeah because it's yeah. almost as if she's already lost it's like like talking like i, I don't want to like impose like spirituality that i really don't think is there but if we talk about a character having a soul like i not in a way that i feel like she's soulless in the in the like sense of like oh she's like a monster it's like she's vacant like there's a vacantness yeah. to this character yeah. that I mean, as a viewer, because I what I extrapolate from it is like the sense of loneliness in the routine for better and for worse. But I, I understand as well that that's something that I'm imposing on the text because it's there, but it's it's also it's very much from the viewer point of view. Yeah, I mean, the question of like the, the vacant quality, I think, is really sort of what I wanted to get at here. And I think for me, what Haynes does so well in Safe when he when he's engaging with uh, Jean Dielman is this like urtext. And by the way, Safe makes like ex- numerous explicit references to Jean Dielman. I'm not projecting this. It's like the opening shot of Safe is a replication of the one of the final shots of Jean Dielman where Carol White, played by Julianne Moore, is underneath a man who's like having sex with her yeah. in this like very yeah. awkward way. It's like just these kinds of things and the long take fixed camera he takes as well. And so anyway, blah, blah, blah. But in his engagement with... Um, with John Dealman, this this idea I think that really emerges between the two of them, and it's absolutely there in Ackerman's film already. There's a real kind of horror film quality to this idea of like what it means for someone, a body, this person who's been in the world for their whole lives, to lose all of the structures and all of the things that have always been there telling them what to do and what to be. And all of a sudden those falling away, whether it's the kind of MacGuffin of John's order going out the window or the MacGuffin of Carol's illness or whatever it is, that these structures start to fall away. And all of a sudden, they have a space that requires them to be a person, to like have subjectivity. They have to speak. They have to decide what to do with their mm-hmm. time. They have to like make engagements with other people. And both of these films in their latter half, I think really the like anxiety and fear and upsetting qualities of them have to do with the fact that this is a really deeply frightening thought for all of us. It's like, it's a really existential like 
terror, this idea of like, what if there's nothing there at the center? Yeah. Like, what mm-hmm. if we are all just the kind of collection of structures and things that, that we have to do every day? And of course, in the Jean Dielman context, it socks right into this very particular moment of 1970s bourgeois domesticity and femininity and all of these questions. But that that idea is timeless. Like it absolutely happens now, right? With the pandemic and our lives and everything. I have a question for both of you because it was the one thing that just kept uh, baffling me is, does anyone have any concept of what the source of that peculiar light that is constantly entering the living room is supposed to be? Because every time it happens, all I can think of is the pattern looks just like, you know, like a photocopier light. The way it like yeah. it it has that repetitive pattern where it's like this speed and then speed 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 like I'm 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 describing the movement of light for some reason I don't know why uh, <laughs> yeah. but it 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 looked to me exactly like the inside of a Xerox machine or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I mean, the first thing that I thought of uh, are some of the like mid '60s Godard films like um, Pierrot le Fou and mm. Une Femme. It's Une Femme, I think, where they have similar sequences that are kind of interpretations of like a minimalist I keep like now I'm like obsessed with the minimalist thing but like our uh, interpretations of light from the exterior world that are an exterior that doesn't exist but I don't think it's necessarily that either it also reminds me of the Seinfeld episode when Kramer Kramer, (laughs) the the chicken sign so like that but like that's probably not an influence because it's like 20 years later but like those are the two things I thought of Uh, but it does does look like a Xerox there's something bizarre about it I think it's a particularly interesting light that that light because it arrives most predominantly in the last shot of the film right? I mean, you see it a little bit earlier on. And for people who just need a refresher, this is a light that shines into the living room space um, where uh, you see them having dinner sometimes. And once the lights are off at night, you briefly see this blue light shining through that kind of scans through the image. But it's most predominant in the last section of the film, which is after Jean stabs this guy. She And and by the way, we should make clear too that one of the important things about the stabbing as well is that it's completely de-dramatized. Like this is like absolutely one of Ackerman's like radical gestures against the kind of hierarchy in normal cinema between event as this like special mode and the ordinary or um, the everyday as a kind of less special mode and like should be covered over or run through quickly to get to the next event. Ackerman totally flips those things and makes them exactly equivalent. So the murder here is made just as like ordinary and everyday and unspecial as everything else that happens in the film. Whereas Jean accidentally dropping a fork or almost knocking over a bottle of water is like hyper dramatized. Like that is like so upsetting when she almost knocks something over. But anyway, so she kills this guy and then she goes out to this living room space and sits there in the dark with this blue light kind of flashing over her face in a long shot. It's either seven minutes or 10 minutes. I forget I off think the top it's about of my head seven. what it is. It's about seven minutes um, in an unbroken scene. And and again, this is like one of the famous shots in Ackerman's oeuvre is Delphine Seyrig sitting there kind of implacably. Sometimes maybe you think like you see certain emotions on her face, but you really don't. Or if you do, it changes so quickly that it's very hard to tell. Um, and so you're left confronted very directly with this question of why did she do it? What does it mean? And the film is very clear about being about saying it's not going to tell you that you can't read John's face. And I think this kind of light that comes in, that's a very different quality of light from what the rest of the film is, which is this very naturally lit space is really interesting. I mean, it speaks to this almost kind of mode of abstraction, like again, Mm -hmm. slightly takes it out of the realm of realism a little bit. um, As you're kind of sitting there thinking like, what is happening? Um, Yeah. I have other thoughts about light in this 
this film. But if anybody wants to add uh, onto that, go ahead. Well, uh, there's really only one other thing in the movie that I wanted to make sure that I mentioned before we uh, before we moved on, which we will have to do at some point. Um, <laughs> and I have one other thing to say about sort of the reception to the film and how it's seen. The, uh, the last thing I wanted to mention that we, we have to talk about in the film is uh, that the, the, the scene of dialogue between Jeanne and her son yeah. about sex mm-hmm. is so, I mean, uh, parents and children is like, I, I put a flag on that because that's something we're going to be talking about through this entire series. Yeah. Um, and this is the first, at least to me, the, f- the first place where I'm just like, th- where she's bringing something to the table that I don't think any filmmaker even approximates in, in terms of the complexity and the, um, and, and sometimes the outright strangeness of these, these dialogues between parent and child and, uh, Holy cow, that scene is just so loaded and can be taken so many ways. Well, I have my take on how, at least I've always heard it described, but, but what was your kind of take on like what it did for you, Simon, as a viewer? I honestly, I don't even know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just like, it's, you could take it as, um, I mean, you could take it as, you know, sort of the, the, the parental anxiety about, uh, you know, you know, children even entering the world of sexuality. You could take it as uh, sort of a defense mechanism about, you know, what she gets up to at five o'clock every day. Um, every weekday, I should be, I should be specific. Um, I mean, and the imagery is so, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm honestly, I'm bringing it up mostly to hear what you guys have to say, because it's just, it's when I revisited that scene, it was just, I, I was, my jaw was on the floor. Well, I do think you bring up a really good question, though, Simon, which is like, what are Jean Dielman's weekends like? I mean, is she like, <laughs> in? Is, she, is she getting brunch? Is like somebody bringing you breakfast <laughs> in bed, you know, like, is it a totally different ballgame on the weekend? That's, you know what? Um, That's a really, I don't know if anyone's asked that question. Yeah. I would actually, I, I'm going to throw out there, I would bet that like my grandparents' generation, it's a Monday to Saturday job type of thing mm. whereas like the saturday is probably very similar but the sunday like there's a new ritual i don't know That's, and like yeah. even the sex scene i believe they even talk about church and god because doesn't the son say oh if i he talks about um believing in god in that sequence or am i confusing yeah. am i mm-hmm. conflating too uh, yeah, or no, not he does, yeah. yeah he well he if what is it he says all right, I just watched it earlier today, so I should be able to rehearse it a little bit. The, the sequence um, happens, I think, on the second day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, so he brings up the idea of uh, his friend has a crush on the school nurse, and the friend has bought this book to, like, explain sexuality. And the funny thing about this is, like, the son reads is quite old to be, like, bringing mm-hmm. these things up. Like, the son reads is, like... 17 at the youngest i would say i mean maybe 16 but he seems older than that mm-hmm. to me and he was a young filmmaker like this is the funny thing is like Jan de court was like a belgian filmmaker as is the this is funny too the first john who comes to visit uh john the first john that comes to visit john <laughs> is, <laughs> is Henri stark who is another famous belgian filmmaker and then the second one who comes to visit her is uh jacques donuel Valcroz, who was one of the co-founders of cahier de cinema so oh, there you wow. go ackerman like packing the, the benches of her uh, a- actors here but anyway so the son brings up this these questions about sex and then kind of gives this like sort of hilariously on the nose rehearsal of like the Oedipal drama right he's you know he says like when I found out he Jan explained to me when I was young my his friend explained to me when I was young what sex is and I realized that you know my dad was doing that to my mom which is John Dielman uh doing that to my mom and I 
was horrified and I thought when dad died that it was God punishing him mm. and but now I don't even believe in God anymore. And, yeah, yeah, and even the language he uses, right? Like he I think he says like he like it's a stabbing or a sabering. Yeah. I like I'm I, like mm. I don't quite it's remember very violent, the, yeah. the yeah. translation, but he's like this, this he he like he stabbed you with it. Like that was yeah. it. Um which again like does also echo later on a little bit as as well, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's true. I actually hadn't thought of that before, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I had always just sort of heard of that scene. I've always heard that scene described as just a kind of example of like Ackerman's humor, like really mm-hmm. bringing up in this very direct way, this like clear uh, reference to, you know, Freud and the edible scene and this like very explicit um well-known interpretation of sexuality in the context of this film where sex is so repressed and so hidden, even as it is structuring the whole narrative effectively. Um, and it's just kind of funny. And then, and, and it also gives a way for Jean to, again, for, for the film to display Jean's like just total lack of engagement. It's just, she, she just immediately is like, there's no point in talking about these things, like no affect, no engagement mm-hmm. immediately kind of shuts it down. Um, it's uh Yeah. I don't know. Justine, were there other things you thought about it? Um, no, I mean, I don't know. It's like, to me, it was, it, it didn't, it did read as funny, like in a, not like a ha ha way. There is, there's a sense of humor in it, but I, I do kind of get a sense that the son is trying to engage with his mother in a very bizarre way. Like he's yeah. trying to evoke something from her. And in general, their interactions are, they're they're certainly strange but there is a warmth to their coldness Mm -hmm. as strange as that says like when like this is one of the hints that the routine is off is when he's like oh aren't you going to turn on the radio yeah and there's something very heartwarming about that it's not like there's there's on one hand you're like oh it's to fill the space because it's kind of awkward to sit there him reading and i believe she's writing letters uh in silence like beside each other but it's like oh he's also part of her routine and he also derives comfort from it and maybe there's even an understanding that he's like oh if she's not following the routine maybe something's wrong but he doesn't have the wherewithal or the cap- the capacity to be like oh is something wrong mom it's more oh he actually does he actually asks her that i think yeah, I think he, at one point he says something like, "Are you is something wrong?" It's when she he comes home and the potato the food isn't ready. Yeah, she burned the potatoes. Yeah, I mean, and this is but this is the other way I've heard the son talked about in this kind of context is the fact that even in a really sort of benign and kind of muted way, the son can be read as kind of representing these external pressures of like. Yeah order right that the son is like oh your button is wrong or you haven't done this it's like mm-hmm. he's the voice that just even very subtly points out that she's not doing what she's supposed to be doing in these mm-hmm. kinds of contexts but i also think justine you're right that like in delphine sarig's like incredibly minutely controlled performance the only times where she seems a little more prone to something like a smile or prone to something like a kind of warm human affect is when she's engaging with the sun. I feel like where you get into the really freaky aspects of this is like, is that yet another thing that she feels like she's supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And I feel like rather than it being genuine and I think or genuine because you, you would need an interiority for it to be judged as genuine or not. But um, I think where you get this done so incredibly smartly is when Ackerman delivers the baby for the second time to the door. And you get that like 
genuinely horror movie sequence where uh, Jean, who is now, her time is completely out of control and she has all this free time and she's sitting in the chair and she's super anxious and she tries to engage with the baby mm-hmm. that she picks up and it's horrible. It's like the baby, hilariously again, quite funnily, the baby immediately starts losing its shit when John picks it up, like screaming yeah. when John is trying to engage with it. And Jean just keeps going back to it and keeps trying to pick it up. And the third time she picks it up, she's doing this like smiley baby jostling thing. And she's like, oh, and then on a dime, she stops and she puts the baby back down and turns and her face goes back to the blank affect. Mm-hmm. And I swear you guys, it's like, that was what Fincher had seen in that sequence in the uh, gone girl when she kills Neil Patrick Harris and then shakes her hair yeah. and immediately loses the affect. It's like that level of just total creepy. Mm. <laughs> I think too, it's like, it's like when you're thinking of Ackerman's career and like even discussing this film as kind of being in relationship to her own mother, I feel as though like almost every single one of her films does deal with some kind of, not all, but like many, uh, like a parental figure and Mm -hmm. often like a cipher for her mother, which is is very clear. And I think that perhaps, like, again, like it's like we're reading from other texts of hers and her own, like we're talking about No Home Movie and uh, Les Rendezvous d'Anna aussi, um, this kind of understanding that she, I think she worries as a child that she's a mm. burden, that her mother mm. feels obliged to care for her. And mm. it's not that there isn't care there, but it's like, yeah. oh, but am I a burden to to my mother who has so many burdens? And how do I, I love her and she loves me, but what, how, like how, the love is not infinite, you know, it's yeah. finite. And how do you cope with that in a way that, is not like self completely just self-effacing, right? Yeah. Because you're you're in a you're uh, sh- the the son and as the child you are also a connected very like literally like the flesh and blood of this other person who feels so alienated. Um, and there's there's so much there that is so heavy and difficult to kind of cope with. And again, I think partially because this is like extra material, this is like extra diegetic material that's kind of Mm -hmm. seeping in. But I I do think it is there as well with the son, who does seem to want the mother's approval as well. Yeah, It's really tough, and it's something we're going to have to talk about at some point. Like, normally, uh, my tendency is to resist uh, extra diegetic stuff and biographical readings and all that stuff, but it's really tough to avoid a lot of the time with Ackerman, I think, on purpose. Um, The uh, But, well, again, it's another thing that I feel like just putting a flag on uh, the last thing I, I think I feel I need to say about Jen Dielman, even though, you know, it's a, it's obviously a masterpiece we could talk about all day. However, um, it and maybe, Kate, you can agree or disagree with the statement. But from what I've read and, and seen uh, so far, it feels to me like a sort of strange accident of history that this is the film that uh, is sort of seen as totemic of, of her career or like the one people have seen and n- not because it's like not great, but because so much of ever, what we're going to talk about down the line is at least as great in different ways. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's very true. I think part of it is just that her films go in different directions as we go forward. And I think I said in our opening episode before that the seventies material is the best known material, um, far and away the best known material. And then she goes in sort of different directions in the later films. And, and some of those I think are absolutely considered kind of critical masterpieces at the same level. Like her film Dest is, is 
very much accepted as a sort of masterpiece. I personally think her late film La Captive is very much up there with Jean Dielman. Um, but I do think there is something, as you say, Simon, maybe either an accident or history of like, or a confluence of events that Jean Dielman just landed on the scene at exactly the right moment to kind of name and concretize so many questions and so much of sort of what was in the air and what needed to think about. It also arrived at the birth of academic film studies. I don't think it was as important for the birth of academic film studies as classical Hollywood texts were. I think it was important for the birth of feminist film criticism, which was really part, even people don't know this actually, but feminist film theory really was like one of the key kind of undergirding aspects of the birth of academic film studies. So go feminist film theory, even though, of course, over the next 20 years, feminist film theory would really have to reckon with the fact that it was mostly about white ladies, um, as is, uh, you know, much of Ackerman's work. So we'll have to talk about that at some point too. But um, anyway, I think the question though of like the, I just wanted to add a little into this question of the extra diegetic readings and to wrap up here, mm. because I think Justine has to go is, um, <clears throat> Yeah, this question of like bringing in outside sources to sort of make sense of Ackerman's films, I think is a complex and fraught. And we'll, we'll have occasion to keep talking about this as we go, because I think hmm, more so than most films, Ackerman's films call up the wish for an autobiographical mm -hmm. reading. Like she yeah. very much wants you to go to that place. And she does it very purposefully and very concertedly over the course of her career. And I do think that that's a little different though, than just assuming that like the psychology that is Ackerman is in the psychologies of her characters or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's not nearly that simple. And I think very much from the outside, you could kind of point to this other notion about her films and this is what i meant when i said i had another point i wanted to make about light in her films is that uh, a film like jean dielman and some of her other films hotel monterey works this way as well ha have very much been talked about um through the lens of kind of something like and this is going to seem obscure but i swear it's relevant uh like 17th century dutch painting mm -hmm. because um <laughs> simon's like huh. let's, let's go let's go <laughs> Let's get into this. Um, I mean, because if you think about this, you know, the famous, uh, the one everybody will know is um, paintings by Vermeer, right? And it's images of often women, not exclusively women, but often women in domestic spaces in, in like posed stilled images obviously because they're paintings with um attention to kind of light the softness of light the domestic interiors these, these this turn in painting the kind of the, the arrival of dutch actuality painting or genre painting is um considered this kind of turn towards the ordinary in painting right the turn away from the kind of event the narrative the historical subject matter landscapes etc of painting writ large uh towards the interior the ordinary and you also get the sense in those um paintings of the emergence of the idea of kind of absorption of characters. So characters absorbed in tasks that are not uh, available to you as the looker. You just know that the character is like reading or painting or cooking or whatever it is, which of course, all of these things have direct connections to Ackerman's work in John Dielman. But there's a great quote that somebody gives about this, uh, these paintings that I thought just like helps make sense of what is going on in John Dielman, which is, um, you know, that these paintings with their kind of emphasis on light and scenography, they really like resist the impulse to interpretation. There's no like narrative. There's no symbolism. It's not like, oh, there's a skull on the table that tells you the character's going to die in the painting. It's not about that. It's about description. It's about the work that goes into like really accurately capturing something in all the detail. Even as you know, it's a painting, even as you know, it's a film, it's work to describe something properly. And that kind of like impulse to description is sometimes set at odds with the impulse to interpretation. And mm -hmm. I think Ackerman's films are very much on the side of description rather than like overtly calling for interpretation. But at the same time, 
you know, she's a little bit like David Lynch this way. She still wants to imply that there are things to be figured out here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the easiest thing to do is to go to her autobiography or not even easy, but the most obvious thing to do is to go to her autobiography or to go to the other films that she's made around this film and to create links. And, you know, we'll keep testing this as we go, but I I don't think that's a bad critical impulse. I think that's absolutely something that's there in the films. Mm -hmm. Well, damn, we, we do have actually one more little film to talk about. Um, wait, do we? Wait, what am I? Ta- have I lost my mind? Wait, What's the other film? Do you not have uh, Sloth on on our list? No, I don't think I did. Wait, <laughs> I, I think that's in the document. We well, we you're we, right. We can do that later. I did, I did not watch La Forest. Oh my god, I completely forgot about that. My bad. You know well, what? That's, that's fine. Okay. We have we'll so much that we've already talked about. Ah, <laughs> uh, the best laid plans of afternoon podcasters. That's okay. We we we've we've droned on long enough. Are there any? emergency comments anyone needs to make before we call this one this was a super fun discussion i know I'm so excited about this podcast this was so much fun thank you justine it was such a good convo yeah it was awesome like i'm super happy to to talk about the groat the greatest chatel <laughs> the, the groat i don't think that's uh... i meant to, i meant the goat but i i kind of like <laughs> the greatest something yeah, I'm just justine where uh where can folks uh, so actually do you have anything to plug you're you're you're, mm. you're you're i feel like you're always so busy um i am busy but it's like nothing interesting oh you can find me on twitter you can find me on twitter at red room rantings if there is something interesting i will probably post it there wait i actually i also have something to plug i normally never have anything to plug but i currently have um an essay in the current issue of cinemascope on dennis hopper's film out of the blue which is a fascinating film in its own right and for once uh my stuff is available online so you could just uh google out of the blue and my last name and it will come up or google cinemascope and out of the blue and you'll be able to access it so thanks cinemascope fantastic uh so that i guess wraps up our first installment we'll be back in roughly a month's time to talk a bunch more films um including i believe which we kind of skipped over um we'll 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 do it folks don't worry we didn't forget about it uh you can follow the podcast on twitter uh, at Ackerman Pod, uh, I'm I'm thinking about making some Chantel Ackerman memes, but I don't know if I have the strength. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm on Twitter too at Cinnamon C I N E M E N T. And uh, Justine, maybe you are, did you already give your Twitter handle? I can't remember. Red yeah, Room Things. You yeah. did. Sorry. Okay. Great. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Thanks again for listening to the Ackerman Year. You can expect monthly episodes for roughly the next year or so. If you do enjoy what we do, you can throw us a few bucks over at paypal.me slash Pod. Help defray our costs. Our intro music is performed by Sundar Subramanian, and uh, we'll be back in about a month's time. Oh, and if you do enjoy the show, uh, please like, rate, review us in all the places you can. All right, peace.